President Trump told them the election was stolen. He told them to go to the Capitol and fight like hell. And while the capital of the United States was under attack, why did it take him 187 minutes to respond? The January 6th committee will hold live hearings beginning Thursday, June 9th at 8 p.m. A lie drove the attack. Now, it's time to learn the truth. Sounds good to me. Thank you, Republicans from the Republican Accountability Project. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. Never is. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Hey there, from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, in Palinville, New York on WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and all your favorite podcast sites... Except for Spotify, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me and everyone else I know. (laughs) From bradblog.com, thank you very much for joining us today. Welcome to the Bradcast, your democracy headquarters of late. And as always, I think, as uh, results are still being tallied in a whole bunch of places for a whole bunch of different interesting reasons after Tuesday's primary elections in seven states, including Iowa, Mississippi, Montana, New Jersey, New Mexico, South Dakota and California. Now, I've got our friend uh, John Nichols of the nation standing by to join me momentarily to discuss some of these results and... Some concerns that he has about the upcoming January 6th U.S. House hearings that you heard mentioned at the top of the show just now. So allow me to speed through a very selective or, as Desi Doyen might say, curated <laughs> list, if you will. Yeah, well, there are quite a few races. Yes, there are. So a curated selection of results of some uh, national note from several of those seven states today. And if I have time a bit later, we will see another remarkable failure by election officials in one California county that may sound familiar to broadcast listeners but first, uh, let's start in uh, in no particular order, frankly. Let's begin in Iowa, in the uh, Senate Democratic primary there. Retired Navy Admiral and political newcomer Mike Franken 
is the winner of the Democratic nomination for U.S. Senate in the uh, Buckeye, wait, no, Hawkeye state of Iowa, uh, defeating former Congresswoman Abby Finkenauer to run against 88-year-old six-term Republican Senator Chuck Grassley, who was first elected in 1980. Fickenauer was thought by many to have been the favorite. She had flipped a GOP-held House seat in Iowa as recently as 2018, only to go on and lose re-election two years later. But many Democrats actually seem to be happy today about Franken winning that race, thinking he may have a better chance to unseat Grassley. Though I think it'll be a tough climb. The last time Grassley was on the ballot, he won with 60% of the vote. So... Don't hold your breath for a flip in the uh, once swing state, but now increasingly red state of Iowa. But that's no reason not to try. You are correct, Desi Doyen, as always. Um, <laughs> now, uh, given the news that uh, most are talking about today in San Francisco's district attorney recall race, which I'll get to in a moment, I want to note this while we're still in Iowa, a progressive by the name of Kimberly Graham, has won as a criminal justice reformer in the Democratic prosecutor primary in Iowa's Polk County. That is Des Moines. As noted last night by progressive election maven and criminal justice reform reporter Daniel Nashanian, he said, quote, she will be favored in November in Des Moines as a progressive criminal justice reformer. So keep that in mind when we get to California in a moment, by the way, and, and the claims that you're likely hearing today about the public having rejected progressive criminal justice reformers as district attorneys, etc. In Mississippi, two-term Republican uh, Congressman Michael Guest and former Navy pilot Michael Cassidy will be heading to a GOP primary runoff in the 3rd Congressional District. Guest had campaigned on border security and so-called gun rights. Cassidy, however, criticized him for being in the minority of Republicans who voted to create an outside bipartisan commission to investigate the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol, a, uh, a commission that would have been separate from the Congressional Committee, which is now conducting the investigation instead. Uh, for that, for that vote, apparently, Guest is being punished by the GOP electorate and will now have to face a runoff in the coming weeks. In Montana, the state has regained the second congressional district that it lost after the 1990 census because of population growth there. That means that a former disgraced congressman in one of Desi's favorites <laughs> may be able to get his old job back in the first congressional district in Montana. Former congressman. Corrupt congressman. Ryan Zink. We can do without that sort of uh, editorializing, Desi Doyen. I don't think so. I think it's important people understand just how corrupt this dude is. Former congressman. Ryan Zinke, who left the House to serve as Donald Trump's disgraced, corrupt, scandal-plagued, forced-to-resign interior secretary. How's that? That works. He was endorsed by Trump nonetheless, and now he remains apparently locked in a very tight race with former state senator Al Olszewski 
in a Republican congressional primary for Montana's first congressional districts. Zinke leads right now by just over 1,000 votes out of about 80,000 tallied so far. So that may take a while to sort out, but it may take a bit longer than usual. Why? Well, according to AP today, ballot printing errors... Mm. Uh, have delayed election results for the new congressional seat, forcing a small northwestern county to count votes by hand. Oh, my. How will they survive? I know. Uh, this in the uh, Republican primary between Zinke and Ol- Olszewski. A vendor apparently printed the Lincoln County ballots on the wrong-sized paper, and they cannot be run through a machine tabulator. The Secretary of State's office uh, announced this just today. By law in Montana, however, ballots have to either all be counted by machine or all counted by hand. Lincoln County Clerk and Recorder Robin Benson said in a statement that the hand count, with about 6,000 ballots left to tally, was expected to take two to three days. Oh, well, hand counting a close race, at least we'll actually know who won or lost. Yeah. S- sounds like a terrible idea. Uh, New Mexico, the uh, Republican governor's primary there. Republicans picked a seasoned TV broadcaster to take on New Mexico's incumbent Democratic Governor Mich- Michelle Lujan Grisham, nominating former network meteorologist Mark Ronchetti on his pledges to rein in state spending, shore up policing, and unleash already record-setting oil production in the state. During his victory speech, he blasted the governor for suspension of in-person teaching during the worst pandemic in 100 years and criticized new social studies standards that increase instruction related to racial and social identity in a heavily Latino and Native American state. Well, we will see how that works out for him. New Mexico is home to 23 federally recognized Native American tribes and nations, while nearly half the population claims Hispanic ethnicity. Ranchetti said, quote, We'll focus on teaching them reading, writing, history, science, and math. One thing we won't teach them is how to hate each other. I'm not exactly sure that's what the new standards do. I'm pretty sure it's not. Uh, But, you know, as you know, uh, seasoned TV personalities can do very well in politics. At least in Republican politics. Yeah. Meanwhile, in the uh, second congressional uh, district Democratic primary, progressive Gabrielle Vasquez is projected to easily win the Democratic uh, primary for New Mexico's second district, paving the way for a matchup between him and incumbent Congress uh, uh, Congresswoman Yvette Harrell. She ran unopposed. The nonpartisan Cook political political report rates this district as a toss-up. The uh, DCCC, Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, names the district as one of its districts in play, so they see it as a possible pickup in New Mexico where all statewide offices are, and the entire five-person state Supreme Court, by the way, are now Democrats. In South Dakota, the uh, at-large, they only have one U.S. House district, so the at-large U.S. House district runs across the entire state. In the Republican primary there, Congressman Dusty Johnson defeated Taffy Howard, 
In that primary, notably, Johnson voted to certify the 2020 election and in favor of the January 6th commission. But he is in no danger, apparently, of losing this race. He's on track to defeat Taffy by about 20 points. Shamefully, however, there are no Democrats running against him in South Dakota this year for the state's only U.S. House seat. Now, that sounds like political malpractice to me from the Democratic Party, but I know we don't have time to delve into that today. No, but maybe John uh, Nichols will have some thoughts on all of this. Uh, More of note in South Dakota, with most of the ballots tallied there, a South Dakota ballot measure to raise the threshold to pass ballot measures to 60 percent. Looks like it's failing. Good. Big time. 67 to 32 as we go to air. Now, this is critical because this November, the expansion of Medicaid in South Dakota under Obamacare will be on the ballot as a ballot initiative. And Republican lawmakers there couldn't kill the initiative. So they tried to just make it much harder, more difficult for it to be adopted by raising the, the the threshold for passage to 60 percent. They were depending on a low turnout election so that they could insert that ballot proposition into this race so that they could get away with it. And it comes after uh, similar popular ballot initiatives have passed in about seven states where Republicans had denied health care to their residents only to see these ballot initiatives by the people easily passed. I suspect the attempt to raise the threshold for passage to 60 percent is a pretty good indication that state lawmakers think that this one in November will pass as well. God forbid they help their people get health care, especially when they vote overwhelmingly in favor of it themselves. Now we get to California. Uh, where there wasn't much uh, suspense at the statewide level. Every statewide elected position from governor on down, uh, as in New Mexico, is currently held by a Democrat here in the Golden State. So the bulk of the drama was actually seen at the local level in our two largest cities, San Francisco and Los Angeles. So let's start in L.A. here. The uh, mayoral race that has received a lot of attention nationwide for some reason. Republican uh, Trump-like billionaire real estate mogul turned suddenly Democratic Los Angeles mayoral candidate with millions to drop into advertising. Rick Caruso will face a progressive Democratic congresswoman by the name of Karen Bass in a runoff election. Six term uh, uh, Congresswoman Bass was once viewed as the front runner in the mayor's race, but Caruso mounted an unexpectedly strong challenge against her by strong here. I think CNN means the 40 million dollars that he uh, used to push the argument that city leaders failed to keep people safe and have proven inept in finding solutions to house some 41,000 people living on the streets in L.A. Yeah, he spent the millions of dollars flooding the airwaves and stuffing mailboxes with uh, direct mail advertising. He did indeed. Uh, and it's going to take a while to count all of the ballots uh, here in L.A. California allows ballots postmarked by Election Day to come in as late as seven days later. Just 50 percent currently tally, uh, tallied right now. Caruso currently leads Bass 42 to 37. 
So uh, he will not get over the 50 percent threshold, which means there will be a runoff in this race, uh, leading currently 42 to 37 over Bass. And then the even more progressive candidate, Kevin DeLeon, coming in with just over 7 percent of the vote as of now. So he failed to get the 50 percent. So there will be a runoff and presuming all of DeLeon's voters come over to the also progressive Bass. She should be able to stop Caruso, but it could be close. Just another reason why this year's elections are so crucial everywhere in the country that you wouldn't know it, given uh, what was apparently very light turnout in California this year. Uh, Then we get to uh, San Francisco up in northern California. Interestingly, this race grabbed much of the national headlines over the past 24 hours or so. As the New York Times described it, voters in San Francisco on Tuesday put an end to one of the county's most pioneering pioneering experiments in criminal justice reform, ousting a district attorney who eliminated cash bail, vowed to hold police accountable and worked to reduce the number of people sent to prison. Chesa Boudin, the progressive district attorney, was ousted in a recall election after two and a half years in office in a vote, according to AP, that is set to reverberate through Democratic politics nationwide as the party fine-tunes its message on crime before midterm elections. Now, we'll speak with John Nichols about this race and and some of the other races for prosecutor around the country, because a lot in the corporate, which is to say largely right wing media, are making much of this particular rejection of a progressive district attorney reformer and the notion that even progressive San Franciscans have had it up to here with out of control crime in their city. But that's not actually true. As uh, attorney David Menchel noted on Twitter last night, quote, the press got what it wanted. Overall, crime went down in San Francisco. Violent crime is down. Property crime is down since Chesa took office. And yet the press manufactured consent for the idea that crime was up and Chesa was somehow to blame. He notes we live in a post-truth world of the press's making. As Washington Post reports, like most big U.S. cities, San Francisco has seen a rise in homicides during the pandemic, although rates remain far below those of past decades and other cities have experienced bigger per capita jumps. Overall, violent crime in San Francisco, they note, remains at some of the lowest levels it has been in four decades. CNN described it as a move that signaled just how far the political pendulum has swung since the 2020 election cycle when many Democratic voters cited police accountability and criminal justice overhauls among their top concerns. Now, Boudin had a lot of stuff working against him here in this recall, including some of his own missteps. So I'm not really here to defend him, frankly, in any way. I just want to make clear to the rest of the state and the country that despite the way San Francisco and California as a whole is depicted by the corporate media, no, crime was not running rampant with criminals running free under Boudin. Overall crime, in fact, was actually down during his tenure. The recall was about a whole bunch of stuff. 
But if the idea goes out to the nation that, you know, oh, even progressive San Francisco outed their former DA because crime had gotten so terrible under his progressive, his failed progressive policies. Well, in fact, that is little more than a post-truth corporate media fiction. Anyway, let's find out what John Nichols has to say about all of that and about his warnings his warnings about the upcoming bipartisan U.S. House Select Committee hearings on the January 6th insurrection and Donald Trump's attempt to steal the 2020 election. That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. With primary elections held on Tuesday this week in seven states, Iowa, Mississippi, Montana, New Jersey, New Mexico, South Dakota, and California, we are now about one-third of the way through the primary season for this year's critical midterm elections, as 18 states in all, by my count, have now held their 2022 primaries. As broadcast listeners know, we've spent much of the cycle to date focusing much less on the horse race uh, and much more on the track conditions on which the horses are running, given that even great horses can falter when running on a muddy uh, on muddy tracks and our elections and voting system these days is pretty much as muddy as ever nonetheless we are trying to keep up with critical races and emerging trends both good and bad particularly as they reflect on progressive candidates and the fight by democrats overall this year to survive during midterms when historically so-called conventional wisdom Suggests the party in power takes a drubbing, particularly when their president has low approval ratings. Add to that a tough economic recovery from the pandemic. That is, uh, if you look at record low unemployment and record high growth of GDP, not to mention working class wages rising for the first time in years, perhaps decades at this point. Uh, an economic recovery that is seemingly going very well, but for post-pandemic supply chain snarls and Russia's war on Ukraine resulting in unbridled corporate profiteering, particularly among big oil producers, all of which has added up to the worst inflation rates in the U.S. since Ronald Reagan was in office. Nonetheless, despite all of that, the fact is that nothing short of democracy itself is on the ballot this November, as I see it, in the cold civil war against the rise of right-wing authoritarianism between now and the 2024 presidential election, not to mention several earth-shaking rulings that are expected from the GOP's corrupt, stolen, and packed U.S. Supreme Court, including the overturning of Roe v. Wade's 50 years of constitutional reproductive freedoms for women 
and another expected blow to gun safety laws under the guise of a purposely misinterpreted Second Amendment at the high court. That even as mass shootings run out of control. All of that leads to a potentially very volatile and or unpredictable electorate as we move toward Election Day in November and what I have described as decidedly unconventional times that could defy that so-called conventional wisdom about what will or should happen to, December, uh, to uh, Democrats this November. And as if things aren't unconventional enough at the same time, all of that could be shaken up even further as the bipartisan U.S. House Select Committee investigating Donald Trump's January 6, 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol and his and his supporters' other blatant attempts to steal the 2020 presidential election. Well, that committee begins their six-part public hearings in prime time on Thursday night. There's just a little bit going on of late. Joining us now to hopefully put at least some of this into helpful perspective, and we wish him luck, as always, is our old friend and progressive champion, journalist John Nichols, national affairs correspondent for The Nation, contributing writer for The Progressive and associate editor of his local Madison, Wisconsin's Capital Times, not to mention the author or co-author of many books on progressive politics, including his latest, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis. Oh, John Nichols, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. It is a great honor to be with you, sir, on the, in the midst of these crazy times. Crazy times, indeed. John, uh, it, it seems you have been putting out a few warnings. I don't want to call them red flags exactly, but some warnings for Democrats and progressives in advance of the House January 6 hearings of late. I want to get to that shortly, but we haven't spoken uh, since primary season has gotten underway in full, so I want to start there. Uh, we can get into uh, the specifics of this week's races or, or any others so far in a moment or even upcoming, but what, if anything, John, uh, should progressives, but really any of us, including the media, be learning from the critical midterm primary elections to date. Are you seeing any patterns, any broad takeaways so far, any lessons we all should be learning? Yes, I think there's quite a few of them. And we've had enough now to, to start to, to see those patterns, mm -hmm. especially with yesterday added on to all the primaries that we went through, you know, going back all the way through May mm -hmm. and even a little earlier. And so this is what we know. Republican turnout is very spiked. They're, they're generally, not mm -hmm. in every place, but generally having pretty good turnout. Mm -hmm. Democratic turnout, not so spiked. Now, it's not necessarily a, a complete disaster. In many of the cases, the Democrats haven't had as fiercely competitive races as Republicans. Mm -hmm. That's certainly true in California. Right. Uh, but uh, the simple reality is that the Republicans do seem to have a pretty solid level of enthusiasm right now. Democrats aren't in a disastrous place, but it's something they ought to be concerned about and conscious of. Mm. I think it's affecting results, and as we talk more about California as an example, I think that clearly the, the lower turnout had an impact on the L.A. mayoral race, had an impact on the San Francisco DA's race, and other, other contests. Um, so that's number one. Uh -huh. Two other things I'll suggest to you. Secondly, Donald Trump is having a great season. Despite what the... the uh, pundits and media who are so obsessed with Trump, they look at every bit of minutiae, mm -hmm. uh, may say, 
the reality is that overwhelmingly the candidates that Trump endorses are winning, often winning by, you know, in sort of surprise situations. That clearly is what happened in Pennsylvania with uh, Doug Mastriano, who's, you know, a full-on insurrectionist, mm-hmm. getting nominated for governor and Dr. Oz for the Senate, a Trump candidate. Uh, similar in, uh, you know, Ohio with Vance and, and quite a few other races. Mm-hmm. So you're ending up in a case where Trump's candidates are winning a lot of races, and clearly when I talk to Republicans, and I do, they will tell me that there's no Republican running, with the exception of Liz Cheney, that wouldn't jump at the chance to get a Donald Trump endorsement. Related to that, just to remind you, mm-hmm. there's increasing evidence that Donald Trump is going to announce his candidacy for president, not next year, but perhaps sometime this year. Uh, and that's just something to be conscious of, because clearly he's, he's making his play. Third thing I will suggest as a pattern coming out of this, this period is that progressives are winning a lot of Democratic primaries, mm-hmm. and they're winning in some unexpected and really interesting places. Started back in March in Texas with Greg Kassar winning a, a really important primary for an open seat in the Austin area in, in that U.S. House. Mm-hmm. You saw Summer Lee win in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Uh, Jamie McLeod Skinner win, defeating an incumbent Democratic member of Congress up in Oregon. So as you look around the map, you're seeing a lot of key wins for progressives. I think you could say that about the Fetterman win, John Fetterman's win in the primary for U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania mm-hmm. as well. And, and so Despite what a lot of the pundits will tell you, the grassroots Democratic voters send to, seem to be sending a very clear signal, and that is that they want to go up against these Trump Republicans yeah. in this very tough year with clearly defined progressive candidates. And and that's what I'm seeing as well. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Progressives do seem to be doing very well, not winning all of the races, but they are uh, winning in a lot of them. Which, therefore, uh, begs the question of, you know, the sort of the largest headline from Tuesday night, uh, that it, at least that includes the word progressive in it. That was, of course, the recall of San Francisco's progressive district attorney, Chesa Boudin, who was elected to office about two and a half years ago in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests following the police killing of George Floyd. Uh, on on the on the promise of reforming the prosecutor's office and holding cops accountable, but despite overall crime rates actually going down in San Francisco during his term in office, voters on Tuesday voted Boudin out of his job in a recall election. I mean, is there anything that progressives in particular, but really all of us uh, overall, should should take from what happened in San Francisco on Tuesday night? Or is that an isolated uh, incident, you know, in, in a state and in a city that is sort of isolated in its politics from uh, from the rest of the nation in, in one sense? It's somewhat isolated, but I don't think we should be casual about it. I think we should recognize that San Francisco has an outlaw, outsized influence in American politics. It's a, it is a city that Americans know well, and the notion of the quote-unquote San Francisco liberal mm-hmm. is you know, well ingrained in our political discourse. So when something happens there, it's not surprising that it's treated as a big deal. However, it is important to understand that San Francisco had an extremely low turnout election in which very, very wealthy people spent a fortune yeah. uh, attacking Boudin. Mm-hmm. And finally, in which the local media bizarrely amplified it a lot of the criticism of Jesse Boudin, but then went turned around and endorsed him, right? Basically said, don't vote for the recall. So there's a lot of conflicting messages from media, uh, and 
I think that at the end of the day, you ended up in a situation where uh, a narrative had developed as regards uh, Jeff Boudin. Uh, I don't think it was a fair narrative, but I do think it was effective, and we should be conscious of that. That's something that you're going to possibly see in a number of other races. It's certainly, to some extent, something we've already seen. We saw a little bit in the New York mayoral race last year. And um, I, the last bit of counsel I'd offer on, in this regard, though, is that if, if you just go a couple miles away from San Francisco to Alameda County, mm-hmm. you will see that a progressive criminal justice reformer is leading mm-hmm. in the race for district attorney there in a county with a bigger population than than San Francisco. If you travel a little further afield, you will see uh, in New Mexico, for instance, that Raul Torres, uh, basically the district attorney of the Albuquerque area, just won a tightly contested race for state attorney general uh, and is now the front runner going into November as someone who is very associated with a lot of reforms. Mm-hmm. In, in policing, and in fact, somebody who's prosecuted police officers. Um, so I, I think that we should be very careful to fully embrace this notion that uh, criminal justice reform is some sort of third rail. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure it is. Yeah, and I don't think it is. I, well, and I tend to agree with you. I mean, I know the way this is going to be played in the in the national corporate media, the way certainly Fox News will play it, and then the rest of the media sort of takes their cues from them that, oh, you know, progressivism and, and uh, social justice reform was rejected by the most progressive city in the nation in San Francisco. Obviously, this doesn't work. That will be the way they play it. So I'm glad that you counter that narrative by pointing out, uh, you know, some of the victories for those uh, 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 criminal justice reformers uh, nearby. And even, by the way, in uh, Iowa, it looks like uh, Polk County, which is Des Moines, Iowa, looks like they are uh, going to be electing a criminal justice reformer. Uh, for prosecutor, uh, at least in the primary there. And it's very likely, that's a very Democratic county, yeah. so the likelihood is it will be in November as well. And, and honestly, Brad, if we go around the country, yeah, uh, I can tell you that from the results over the last couple months, race after race, mm-hmm. location after location, the the election of progressive prosecutors and the re-election of prosec- progressive prosecutors continues, Yep. right? It's It's an ongoing process. Of course there will be defeats, of course there will be setbacks, that's politics when you elect literally thousands of prosecutors across the country. Right. But I, I think reading too much into it is a dangerous game uh, for two reasons. Number one, uh, I do think that, that criminal justice reform has been a part of the broader messaging that brought a lot of younger voters out and really built out the Democratic coalition. So there's a political side to this. You don't want to abandon mm-hmm. that messaging. Uh, because it has some, you may want to fine-tune it, but you don't want to abandon it because it has some political resonance. And then there's the other reality, which we don't talk about enough in politics or governance, that it's the right thing to do. Oh, there's that. Yeah, yeah I know. there's that. Well, and, and and that's something that it would be nice if Democrats kept in mind, uh, who are notoriously skittish. They see uh, an election like we saw in, in San Francisco on Tuesday, and they're like, oh, we have to change everything when it comes to uh, uh, criminal justice reform. Uh, John, I, you know, I've been making the case on this program 
that even though the so-called conventional wisdom suggests Democrats are in for a shellacking this November, as is almost always the case during these midterms for the party in power when they have a, an unpopular president in office in particular, I've been making the case that these are decidedly unconventional times and that while a shellacking could certainly happen, there are enough X factors as I see them right now. Uh, as I mentioned at the top, the Supreme Court ruling on, on Roe being just one of them. There are many others that with all of these X factors, it would sort of be self-defeating idiocy or political malpractice, take your pick, for any Democratic official or frankly Democratic voter to presume that history will repeat itself this November. Am I out of my mind, John Nichols? Nope. You're not <laughs> out of your mind. Um, you're a little bit optimistic. Uh-huh. Um, or if we're going to clarify using Rebecca Solnit's term, hopeful. Uh-huh. Um, and, and I think that we must be realistic. Midterms tend to go bad for the party in power because of practical realities. And that is that when you're in the party in power, you get all the blame for everything that's going on. Mm -hmm. Everything we understand about our media system tells us why this occurs, right? Because our media system doesn't really give a lot of perspective. It's the crisis of the moment, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so that attaches. So you end up in a situation where Joe Biden, who was elected at least in part because there was an expectation he would do a dramatically better job responding to the coronavirus pandemic than uh, Donald Trump, and has done a better job of responding to it, mm -hmm. could still end up getting blamed if we have a coronavirus surge as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. And so that's a practical reality of politics. So I, I give that counsel up front, but then step back from that and say, I generally agree with you, because these are such unprecedented times right. that there is at least the possibility that the Democrats could actually prevail, that they could come out ahead. And there is, I think, a very near certainty that this will not be the crash and burn sort of election that you saw in 1994 or 2010. Mm -hmm. I think we've become so much more divided as a country that that becomes less of a common reality. Uh, and I'll give you a good reason to believe that, which is in 2020, right, Donald Trump was presiding over a pandemic that he had done a horrible job of managing. He'd been an awful president who had, you know, divided the country, offended people, you know, pretty much done everything wrong. And he got 70 million votes. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? He did yeah. actually did really well. Yeah. And that's because of the deep divide in the country, yeah. I, I think. So it now that two years ago that played in Trump's favor, this time around it gives Democrats a better base from which to work. And I can tell you that then when you add on to that, um, the reality of abortion actually being banned yeah. in states across the country, yeah. that becomes a huge factor. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to reelect a number of Democratic governors and a number of Democratic attorneys general and even some Democratic prosecutors around the country. Well uh, and, and that's what I mean. I, I, I think that there are so many sort of unknowns. We, we have some idea of where the Supreme Court is going on row. Uh, we have an idea where they may be going on guns. But, you know, Donald Trump reentering the race, which, uh, as you referenced, could happen as soon as next month from uh, some reporting. 
all of these uh, mass shootings going on. I, I just think, and of course the war in Russia, inflation, everything else, there are so many unknowns, uh, you know, known unknowns, if you will, uh, you know, between here and November, I think anyone who just uh, rolls over and gives up, maybe that's hopeful, maybe it's optimism. But to me, it just seems to be insane to make any presumptions in this political environment. Speaking of which, John Nichols, one of those X factors, uh, of course, uh, is the upcoming January 6 hearings held by the bipartisan U.S. House Select Committee. To that end, last night on Twitter, seemingly out of the blue, John, you offered a list of votes that Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney of Wyoming, the vice chair of the January 6th committee, and one of the loudest voices speaking out against Trump and his insurrection, you detailed a bunch of votes that she has taken in the current Congress, as you note, since January 6, 2021. Let me share some of those votes. She has opposed expansion of voting rights, opposed campaign finance reforms to reduce the influence of corporations in, on elections, opposed efforts to ban partisan gerrymandering, opposed new ethics rules for federal office holders, refused to accept links between Trump's big lie and the GOP's attacks on voting rights. She refused to condemn GOP voter suppression laws in states like Georgia refused to accept the role that the Electoral College plays in fostering disputes that undermine democracy. Why did you uh, find it necessary all of a sudden, John, to make those points on Twitter uh, on uh, Tuesday night in advance of this week's first public hearings of the January 6th committee? Well, because I'm not exactly down with the Liz Cheney hero worship thing. Uh-huh. You know, I am thrilled that Liz Cheney and Adam Kinziger had the courage to stand up to their own caucus and to Donald Trump and to join this committee. I think that's great. But one of the things that we always have to be conscious of with so-called never-Trump Republicans mm -hmm. is whether they are joining what you're doing or seeking to take ownership of it. Mm -hmm. That's a big difference, right? Mm. If you come in and you say, look, I'm, my party no longer has a place for me. I want to help our country. I want to work with you, the majority party on the side of democracy, mm -hmm. and you know I'm going to have advice and counsel for you. I may even disagree with you on some things, but I'm, I'm a part of this fight. That's one thing. It's another thing to come and say, I hate Trump. I'm going to help you expose every bad thing about Trump. I'm going to bring it all out. Mm -hmm. May even support efforts to hold Trump personally to account. But if you're going to talk about structural changes, that actually assure that this thing doesn't repeat, that we don't have another January 6, 2021, on January 6, 2025, mm -hmm. I'm not down with that. And, and, and that's my concern about Cheney. And uh, by and large, Adam Kinzinger has also voted the same way uh, as, as you mentioned Liz Cheney has, opposing the expansion of voting rights and so on and so forth. On uh, Tuesday at The Nation, you wrote a piece headlined, Liz Cheney wants the January 6 committee to pull its punches. Uh, what are your concerns there, John? And, and, and what is your evidence that she wants the committee to pull their punches? Well, it's actually been reported quite a bit. And I, yeah, I'll give credit to the group or to the site Axios, which mm -hmm. has very good D.C. insider mm -hmm. web of context, as well as uh, some very blunt statements by mm -hmm. uh, Jamie Raskin, who is the key progressive on, on the committee, mm -hmm. all of which points to uh, sometimes directly, sometimes a bit obliquely, but clearly where the challenge lies. 
to concern about the recommendations that the committee will produce. And this is the important thing to understand about uh, congressional hearings of any kind. The hearings seek to expose a lot of wrongdoing, uh-huh. right? The whole point is to create a narrative, create a drama. And then at the end of that, you're supposed to make a recommendation. So the Watergate hearings mm-hmm. and all the Watergate you know, meetings, inquiries, which extended really over the better part of two years, 73 into 74, ultimately produced uh, in the House Judiciary Committee a recommendation for three articles of impeachment. That A, caused Richard Dixon to decide to quit the presidency, but B, also served as an underpinning for campaign finance and ethics reforms that, that sort of swept through in that 73-74 period. Right, a ton a ton of reforms following Except that. that if yeah. it was still on the books, we'd be in a much better place. <laughs> right. The courts upended it. Right. So, so that's one way for it to go. The other way for it to go is the Iran-Contra hearings of 1987. And there you had incredible evidence of wrongdoing by Ronald Reagan and all the people around him. But the committee divided. It, it did not produce a clear signal coming out. It didn't recommend impeachment. Uh, it pulled its punches in a whole bunch of ways. What happened? Ronald Reagan walked away untouched. George, w. Bush, George H. W. Bush was elected president of the United States in mm-hmm. the next election, mm-hmm. even though he's you know all woven through so much of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, other people who were you know either directly tied or tangentially tied remained very critical figures in our politics, and we didn't really get a lot of reform as regards our foreign policy or how we did you know a lot of governing. Right. So you have these two possible courses, and all I'm saying is. We can't really afford, with only two Republicans on this committee, to have a situation where Liz Cheney, after all the evidence comes out, say, as we have indications that she, she may, or that she, or I think we could almost say will, um, to have her say, no, I don't want to look at, at major election reforms. I don't want to look at efforts to you know, work around or get rid of the Electoral College, as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, I only want to do with this narrow area of you know criticizing and maybe handing off some potential charges on Trump and a few other people. Well, uh, let me press you on that a little bit, because I, I do also want to get into some of the specific reforms that you would like to see. But one of the things that's been impressive, I think about uh, the January 6th committee, at least as I've seen it, is that it really does seem to be an example. You know, I kind of watch their proceedings and I think, man, I wish all House committees actually worked that way because they actually do seem to be working together in tandem. Yes, you've got Republicans and Democrats are not going to agree on everything, but they seem to be working toward a common mission as opposed to working at odds against each other, which, you know, for my lifetime, that's pretty much, you know, the bulk of what what I've seen in these committee hearings of any type. So I'm happy to see that that sort of common purpose. Won't uh, each of their recommendations, whatever they are that come out of this, won't they be that just that much stronger if, in fact, they are all made unanimously in a full, unified, bipartisan manner, even if it is not everything that the Democrats might want to have in their list of recommendations? Totally agree with you. I think that, remember, in Watergate, to go back and using the two examples, I yeah. think, in Watergate, they didn't get everything they wanted. John Conyers, who was on that committee, wanted mm-hmm. a lot more. Right. Um, including, you know, going some of the people proposing going into Nixon's handling of Vietnam as, as an impeachable offense. Mm-hmm. 
And so, uh, which would have set incredible precedents going forward. Um, and so, yeah, you do have compromise. There's no question. Peter Rubino back in the Watergate era was brilliant at bringing not just Republicans, but Southern conservatives over to the side of, of the three impeachment resolutions that they actually put forward. So I fully accept that. But what I'm saying, Brad, is how far do you go mm-hmm. in seeking unity? Right? Where's, where's the cutoff line right. for seeking unity? And if the cutoff line is, as regards structural changes, we're going to only, you know, tinker a little bit with the Electoral Count Act, mm-hmm. right? You know, which is, you know, say, well, vice presidents can't overturn the results of elections. Okay, fine, right? But the fact of the matter is, that's something that a new Congress, remember the Congress that, that is, you know, that comes together after the November election, potentially mm-hmm. a Congress where one or both houses might be controlled by the Republicans, could refuse to do. Right, of course. And and so, it, it, you have a... Here's all, the all, all of these they could refuse to Probably. do. Obviously. And if that's the case, yeah. and you've ended up where you've compromised down to the most simplistic, the most minor reforms, and that's all you put on the table, and you don't even get that, yeah. then you, you've spent a very long period of time on an inquiry uh-huh. that doesn't get you anywhere. So uh, coming out uh, all of this time, making these recommendations, pulling them back to get unanimity, and then not seeing them passed anyway, you're suggesting they might as well go all in as far as they possibly can because these things may not happen anyway, but get it on the books that these are our recommendations based on our thousand uh, interviews, you know, 164,000 documents, whatever. Uh, specifically along those lines, John, we've just got a, a, a minute or two left here. Specifically, what would you like to see uh, from those uh, reform recommendations from the Democrats and hopefully uh, Kis- uh, Kissinger and, and, and Cheney play along? Sure, or at least to some extent. Right. Well, first off, it's in the, it's in the precise area of accountability. Yeah, we talk a lot about accountability. But, uh, and I hope that, that if there are criminal charges that they're handed over to a Justice Department that actually chooses to act on these issues. And, and you know, we've seen some evidence recently that the Justice Department is acting on right. key areas. Yeah. So that's great. But there is one thing that Congress can do, and that is, in a, in a sense of the House resolution, sense of the House and the Senate, they can do it immediately in this fall once the recommendations come down, is say, that Donald Trump and, name the other figures, violated their oaths of office to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States by participating in an insurrection and giving aid and comfort to insurrectionists, Mm -hmm. and thus are disqualified from running for office in the future under the 14th Amendment, Section 3 of Mm -hmm. the U.S. Constitution. That should be a formal statement from the House and Senate. Do you have any powers? Do you have any sense, by the way, because, you know, we've been covering the, uh, the challenges by free speech for people against candidates like Marjorie Taylor Greene to try to keep her off the ballot under that same uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, the insurrectionist disqualification clause. Do you have any sense that the uh, from your reporting or from what you're hearing that the in, in fact, the committee will sort of make that resolution uh, that that Donald Trump should be disqualified under the 14th Amendment? I know there are members of the committee who have discussed the 14th Amendment, uh-huh. and favorably discussed this concept, and it is almost unimaginable that it won't come up. 
Uh, I don't know that you're anywhere near a majority uh-huh. on this, and so that becomes, you know, again, the open question and, and the, okay. the issue. This is really vital stuff because it is such a – the notion that this committee would produce a report that says, as Jamie Raskin has suggested, mm-hmm. that Trump was the central player in a coup attempt. Right. And then you say, but we're not really going to address the question of whether he should be disqualified for running for office in the future, Right. So effectively saying, well, he could set up the next coup attempt in 2025. You know, that's a really important mm-hmm. aspect of it. Not the only accountability component, but that's that's sort of the, right. the top of the hill. Any other, now, uh, very quickly, yeah. uh, any other uh, recommendations you'd like to see them make? And then i got a closing question for you here. Very quickly, I'm going to do just one. It's yep. simple. There's many, many others, and that's the abolish the Electoral College. Or, at the very least, endorse national popular vote as a workaround from the Electoral College. And you do that knowing exactly how hard it is, fully understanding that, but saying the evidence that we have gathered Mm -hmm. shows that the Electoral College itself becomes the vehicle by which uh, challenges to the legitimacy of elections are raised when when the elections are themselves fully legitimate, right? Uh That by parceling this out to states and then having it come down to a, voter, a battle over 20,000 votes in Wisconsin or 19 or 20,000 votes in Arizona or in, in Georgia, the Electoral College it takes us away from an understanding that when somebody wins an election by 7 million votes, as Joe Biden did, uh-huh. or by 3 million votes, as Hillary Clinton did, they ought to, in a democracy, become president. That basic construct should be a part of the recommendations of the committee, recognizing how hard it is to make the change but also recognizing that if you don't make that connection, we're never going to have a real debate about the Electoral College. And, of course, I hear you, and you you make an excellent case. That said, that brings us back to the Liz Cheney problem. She is the sole member of Congress from her state of Wyoming. She's in the middle of a re-election battle for her political life in a tiny state, you know, a large state, but with a tiny population that greatly benefits from the Electoral College. I, I mean, it's isn't it just overreach to expect that we would ever see Liz Cheney come out against the Electoral College? I think so, because she said as much from what we understand. Right. And so here on this issue, if she wants to do a dissenting statement, ah. fine. So come out with a certain set of uh, statements that everyone agrees with, and then some majority versus minority uh, uh, recommendations, something like that. Seems to work for the U.S. Supreme Court. Don't get me started on what works for the U.S. Supreme (laughs) Court, John. Nothing about the Supreme Court works, but the bottom line is that they have, on major issues, they Uh, have sense. Yeah, you're right. Uh, uh, Last question here, John. I I, I know that uh, political predictions are a risky business, so please feel free to duck this question if you like. But will will these hearings uh, move the needle one way or another as far as how Americans see what happened on January 6th or have all of our positions, you know, simply become too calcified at this point to uh, sort of change our collective outlook? I think there's actually a portion of Americans who basically don't care that much about politics. Mm -hmm. But vote, you know, it's what their parents did, they do it. Mm -hmm. I think that they are the folks we're really talking to. And they may be a little bit conservative, a little bit liberal, but they could be impacted by a genuine set of revelations about Trump's role in this. And I have 
in doing interviews and talking about these issues, I've repeated something that, that Jamie Raskin said, I think over the last weekend, he was up in New England doing some talks, and he was asked about this, and someone said, well, how serious was Trump's role? And Jamie Raskin said, and I'm paraphrasing, mm-hmm. that he believed Donald Trump went to sleep on the night of January 5th, 2021, mm-hmm. believing that events of the next 24 hours would assure that he would continue as president of the United States into a second term. Oh. Now, just take that in. Oh. That puts Trump not at, on the periphery of a conspiracy. That puts him at the heart of it. Yep. Knowing the details, knowing the night before, that events would occur obviously so disruptive at the U.S. Capitol the next day that somehow the results of an election would be overturned. That's, that, if you take that in, every time I mention that to people, yeah. people tend to take a deep breath and yeah. go, wow. And if that is what this committee brings out, if they bring, if they can make this argument convincingly that that was the case, I think there's a portion of Americans who would be impacted, and I do think that could, in this closely divided country, move the needle. I hope you're right, John Nichols. I hope you're not being too optimistic, (laughs) or as Rebecca Solnitz would say, too hopeful. John Nichols is the National Affairs Correspondent at The Nation. You should follow him on the Twitters, of course, at Nichols Uprising and, of course, at TheNation.com. John, always great speaking with you, my friend. I look forward to the next time, which probably won't be very long, uh, given everything else that's going on. So I look forward to it. Thanks, John. Pleasure to be with you, my friend. Good conversation. Thank you, sir. Okay, well, Des, I've already blown through our second break. Yes, I know. Sorry about that. But it was good to talk to John. It was. It always is. Uh, So we do have to get out. So we will catch up on everything else I'd hope to do on a future broadcast. Until then, thanks to John. Thanks to Desi Doy and our producer. Thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. A service made possible by those of you kind enough to donate at bradblog.com slash donate so everyone can hear the Bradcast. Thank you for that. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. We'll see you there. Until we see you here tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.